the silence of conviction. While this psalm opens with blessing, it is the result of a year of silence scheming to cover up his sin while it's becoming more and more evident among his friends and during which time not only is David silent, but God turns a deaf ear toward David. That is, there's no, there's no conversation going on with God and David. David now uses three words to describe his conviction. You see it in verse 1, the word transgression. Transgression. That's a direct rebellion against a particular law. So you know that this is a command of the Lord and you disobey it. In David's case, it's adultery. Then there is the word at verse 1 goes on in sin. Sin is to miss the mark. It's a general disobedience. Rather than living in pursuit of God, you're just sort of out there on your own living in the way you want. Then there is this word in verse 2, iniquity. Iniquity is the natural bend. I read it in Psalm 51 that we're born with. We're born in sin. When he says, I'm conceived in sin, Psalm 51, it didn't mean that it was a, 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 an ungodly relationship that bore David. It was just that we are born with a sin nature. <clears throat> that each of us has a bent toward sin. That's iniquity. Well, the effect of his living in silence is twofold. First of all, it's his spirit. Now look at verse 2. You see the word. It's a small s. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about man's spirit. Now set aside the obvious nature of his sin. Because when you talk about David, you start to say things like, well, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me. And I, I hope it doesn't, but at the same time, I don't want you to dismiss the lessons here because you would say, well, that's not my sin, that's not my problem. You know what it's like when something comes along, it happens in your life, it's not even your fault, but it happens in your life. As a result of that, it starts to affect your spirit. Now, David's spirit was obviously vexed, if you will. But there are times in our life that things happen, circumstances, sometimes through no fault of our own. We think it's no big deal. We think we can get on without it. We think we can make do. But it starts to affect our spirit. That's what he's talking about. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 7 as filthiness of the flesh and spirit. It just hangs on you. In contrast here, David says he is now, verse 2, blessed is the man whose spirit is no guile, that is, there's no deceitfulness, there's no cover-up. And you see the word roaring there in verse 3. What is that about, the roaring? It's like a troubled conscience. It's when something is bothering you. You know, it's, it's got you troubled. It's somebody else's fault, maybe. Whatever it is you're going through, the circumstances of life are just bothering you. And there's a constant roar, right? There's a constant uproar in your life. Nobody else seems to know it. Instead of God's blessing, David attempts to deceive and cover up. It caused weakness, despair, and he even describes it as the drought of summer. Simply put, David was no fun to be around. And that's the case of any child of God living in silence. Worse yet, covering up a rebellious spirit. Now again, 
I'm not trying to put you in the position of David. I'm not trying to come at you like Job's friends. But still, if your life is perpetually negative, there's this roaring, this continual unrest, then you're going to have to admit that there is something between you and the Lord that needs to be dealt with. Even if it's just your own spirit, your own attitude, your own thoughts, something has to be dealt with. That's where David ended up. Whether it's open sin or just the resentment of someone else's sin, the chastening of God is upon the silently rebellious child of God in an attempt to bring them back to himself. And if you're stubborn about it in your spirit, and that the stubbornness kind of sets in, as it did with David, the chastening might include pain, suffering, even death. For that we go on, and we see this silence affecting his body physically, he says. Verse 3, he feels it in his bones. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that every time you feel achiness in your bones, something's wrong between you and the Lord, but you know how it just... It just takes the life out of him. Verse 4 says his moisture is gone. What's that? That's, that's the vitality of life. It's just gone. As the poem describes, how do I know when my youth is all spent? When my get up and go has got up and went. Some of you know it. Okay, yeah. I mean, such is the regret of silence. I've often said regret is the stuff of age. The more regrets you accumulate and don't deal with, the more it affects you, even physically. Well, these two things, body and spirit, are dealt with in 1 Corinthians 6. I'll give you the verse there, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. He says, you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit because they belong to God. They've been bought with a price. Had David immediately turned to God for help, he would have avoided many months of divine silence and discipline. Suffering in silence will age you beyond your years. It may be as obvious as David's sin, and you hope nobody else knows about it, it may be just an unwillingness to correct your course and live in self-pity rather than deal with this circumstance that you think nobody else knows about. But it's not easy to get it out. Sometimes it's easier, you think, to live in silence. For that, the next Selah, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Think on that. God sent the prophet Nathan, again, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, you can read the story. You might remember the story, though, when God sent the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells David a story. You ever had somebody come to you and say, well, you know, just I want to give you this hypothetical. So Nathan tells this story. And in telling the story, David thinks to himself, well, that's wrong. That needs to be dealt with. And what did Nathan say? It's you 
right? It's you that I'm talking about. Notice the personal pronouns there in verse 5. He says, my sin, my iniquity, I have, I will, I said, my transgressions, my sin. Again, I'm not trying to put anyone in the position of David. But so long as you continue to think like David, that your trouble is someone else's fault. Because along the way, David just kept thinking, if they would have just done what I said, we wouldn't have all this trouble. Nothing will ever change in your life so long as you're looking for excuse. And the first step to forgiveness is there in verse 5, is just to come clean. Acknowledge the guilt. To acknowledge is simply to get it out in the open, no longer hidden, no longer covered up. He continues, verse 5, to confess it. What is confession? Confession in the New Testament is simply to say the same thing about it that God says about it. So if you see something in the Word of God that it says it's wrong and this is the result of it, you say, well, that's me, and you would confess that. That's, that describes me, no excuse. That's the New Testament confession. And the Old Testament confession is to discard it, literally cast it aside, have nothing to do with it, throw it away. Proverbs 28 puts them both together. He that covereth his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes, confessing, New Testament, and forsakes, the Old Testament concept, shall have mercy. On the one hand, it may be the pleasure of your sin that you're unwilling to let go of. I don't know of anybody here in this room, but there are people that just have things. They say, well, you know, that's just my thing. It's just what I do. It's just who I am. And they're just not willing to deal with it. And they hang on to it. But there's also a secondary problem. It's not so obvious, not always dealt with, just as damaging. You can be holding on to something that's more like a feeling. It's been unfair. It's an attitude of anger for what happened. It's a resentment over those who did it. There's even a vengeance that has taken hold of some people's spirit. And you're not willing to cast it aside and say, God can handle that. But until you do, you'll never be able to move on to the second part of it, and that is to accept God's grace. The end of verse 5, it ends with forgiveness. You can't be forgiven so long as there remains an excuse for what you did or why you feel the way you did because someone else did something. David might have thought, now I don't want to put any, any thoughts in your mind, but David might have thought if she just hadn't have been on that rooftop. Maybe. And you might be tempted to think if this hadn't happened, if they hadn't have said that, if, if, if they wouldn't have done that, well then I wouldn't have and you're trying to justify yourself for where you are in life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know these verses. For by grace are you saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, because what would we do? Boast. What is boasting? It's making an excuse for who you are. Well, you know, I'm not as bad as, well, I never did. Well, you should have heard what? we would compare ourselves one to another. The greatest thing about it is, if you'll stop making excuses, 
Not only will the sin be forgiven, but notice the phrase there at the end of verse 5, how it reads. He forgave the iniquity of my sin. The hangover from it. The ickiness of it. The guilt. Or your translation might read, He forgave the guilt of my sin. My dear friends, the grace of God not only clears the conscience, it cleanses the heart. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us. Not only forgive us, but to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Well, so long as David tried to cover it up and make excuses for what happened, there remained a footnote on his ledger, and he links this word iniquity to a financial term back up in verse 2. The word in verse 2 is used, iniquity, but you see the word he links with it there? It's the word impute, or you might have another word for it. It's a financial term. Here's what most of us think about when we think about forgiveness. When we think about forgiveness, well, it just goes away. No, it doesn't. This word impute, if you're a, any financial people here? Accountants? You can't just make money go away. It's got to go somewhere. You can't just make it appear. It came from someplace. This is the word impute. It's the carryover. When you are forgiven and you confess it, it's under the blood, you know all that stuff, but this imputing is important because some of us are still living with the guilt because you've never turned it over to the Lord. Every time you're forgiven, it gets imputed to the account of our Lord Jesus Christ. To suggest it just goes away, that's cheap grace. It doesn't just go away. Our Lord Jesus carries the guilt of every confessed sin. That's what it took to fully forgive us. And that's the only way you'll get out from under that sense of guilt. Forgiven, but you still have that hangover because you've never understood fully what Christ has done. Well, it took David a year and the death of his child to finally admit what he had done. But when he did, the record records the significance of this cleansing, verse 6. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found, surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. What a great little phrase. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. And I know Eloise loves that phrase. Two significant results of cleansing. Prayer and praise. If considered in the negative, you would say it's something like this. There are two significant results of sin. What is that? Number one, it's going to show up in lack of prayer. 
And number two, it's going to show up in a loss of praise. There's no joy in your life. The first one is assumed. Verse 6 says, everyone that is godly will do what? What's it say? Let's assume then. That's, that's the thing you know you're supposed to be involved in. What's the first thing we find Paul, after his conversion, he was Saul, he's blinded, he's renamed, and we find him in a house alone with no particular sort of uh, discipling, no instruction, and the Lord says, you're going to find Paul in the house doing what? Pray. That's exactly what. First thing he did as a believer was to pray. Well, the most common prayer offered boldly is for mercy and help in our time of need. There's a preservation of prayer, beginning in verse 7. I love that phrase. I'm taking those two phrases there. I love that phrase, thou art my hiding place. Isn't that a great little phrase? Thou art my hiding place. That's what prayer is. Notice this prayer is urgent. He says in verse 6, while you, may, while you may be found, your translation may say, while there is yet time. There's an urgency to prayer. Whatever else it is, prayer must be a priority for godly living. And as a footnote, may I just say, when he uses the term godly, it doesn't suggest that there's other people who are less sinful than me. There are other people who have a better way about praying than me. There are other people that seem to be closer to God than me. We'll let those people pray. That's not what he's suggesting at all. The term godly in verse 6 is related to the loving kindness and mercy of God. And if you have experienced the loving kindness and mercy of God, if you know anything about that, you ought to do what? Pray. Prayer is not the optional work for some more spiritual persons. Prayer is the work of all believers. And prayer is described here as the thing that keeps your head above water. Verse 6, now this could be the waters of judgment as in the days of Noah. It could be that. But again, you would go off and just dismiss it as something that doesn't apply. But there's also the sense of it, and you've known it. You know what I'm talking about. When there are days you're just trying to keep your head above water, right? There are circumstances of our life that sometimes feel like we're just we're starting to go under. That's what prayer is for. If nothing else, it'll just help you keep your head above the water of life circumstances. Without prayer... In this thing, whatever it is, victory will always elude you. As a believer, you're saved, you're on your way to heaven, but as a husband, as a worker, as a parent, as a retired person, a volunteer, you're saved and you're on your way to heaven, but... But this is the stuff of life that you sometimes start to go under. You need to pray. God, make me a better husband. God, help me be the parent I need to be. Lord, help me to be a better testimony at work. Without prayer, you fail at doing what God wants you to do and be. 
Forgiveness is the one thing, but cleansing and getting past, getting over it, moving on, however you describe it, it requires that I pray. So the question is, what battle are you fighting? It's not David's battle. Okay, I get that. All right, we'll set that aside. But, but what battle are you fighting? You know it belongs to the Lord. But like David, you hang on to it for years sometimes. Thou, God, art my hiding place. Give it to the Lord in prayer. Second significance of coming clean is the power of praise. Again, verse 7, that little phrase there, songs of deliverance. Isn't that another great little phrase? Songs of deliverance. Out of David's experience came some of the greatest psalms. You just heard this morning a story, and you've heard other stories about some of the wonderful hymns that you've heard and sung and you know the words to, and some of those hymns came out of the most tragic circumstances of life. You read the great faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. You know that passage there? It talks about this great cloud of wit and all these folks that, that are around. And in Hebrews 12, the very next chapter, verse 1, he says this, Seeing then that we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Prayer is the place you can hide out all day long, but praise is the place that will encompass you with the testimony of other people the encouragement of other testimonies, how other people have gone through it. You can suffer all alone if you want to. And you can pray, and that's a good thing to do. But you want to really get clean with God? Praise. Because praise will bring around you the other things you need to help encourage you in this thing you're going through. My dear friend, do you want to come clean of everything you've been going through? You can't do it alone. Praise will ensure you are surrounded with the help you need. Well, then as you begin to gain some traction, you start moving forward toward the place you say you know you want to be, you know you want to be different, you know you want things to change. You want to come away from some of those dark, destructive habits of life, the hindrances that keep you from being the person you want to be. You want to let out a shout of joy? Verse I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or the mule. They, use your imagination here. We'll come back to that. Don't be like the stubborn, yeah. Which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with a bit and a bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in the Lord. A shout of confidence. Nothing can suck the life out of you like uncertainty. And then you get paralyzed by fear, and you get stuck in the very thing you're trying to get over, trying to get past. And the two things that can help rebuild, rebuild your confidence and keep you moving forward in the Lord's work is first of all, well, I'll give them to you. It's guidance, God's guidance and His grace. 
and the first one there in verse 8. How does he guide you? How does he guide you? With his, with his word? Verse 8. With his eye. Just, your mom ever had one of those looks? <laughs> you ever get one of those looks from a school teacher? Oh. God guides you with just his eye. Now, the first thing that tells me the Lord is watching over me, if, if you're in Psalm 32, I'm just going to turn over a page to Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. The problem for David is not that God had taken his eye off of David. But David has taken his eye off the Lord. It's easy to get your eye off the Lord when trouble comes, isn't it? I mean, you've been, you've been doing all the right things, you've been, and then something blindsides you. And you're like, where did that come from? And you start dealing with it, right? You start dealing with it. And when you start dealing with it, what happens? You get your eye off the Lord. The unsaved person, they'll make an excuse. And here's how their excuse goes. Well, I have to take care of this. I'm not ready now. I've got to deal with this. And they start telling about all the excuses of life that they have to get in order before they would what? Trust Christ. And it's just as disobedient. When the believer says, well, you know, I can't really deal with that right now. I can't really, and they start making all kinds of excuses before they would ever trust Christ in this circumstance. Whatever else it may mean, if God can guide you with his eye, you must be walking pretty close with the Lord. Spending time in his word, maybe listening to worship music, spending time in prayer, having quiet times. Where you can just take a breath, let out a sigh of rejoicing. If you don't, God may have to get your attention in other ways. I'm smiling because verse 9 just hit me over the head, right? There's some more dramatic ways God can get your attention if he has to. What does he say there in verse 9? What does he call you? Proverbs 26 says, there's a whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the fool's back. One way or another, you're going to let out a shout. How do you want to holler? How do you want to shout? What do you, yeah, exactly. What do you want to come out of your mouth? You want it to be praise. Well, the choice is yours on that. Who are you going to trust? Another thing that will help guide you and move you toward the place you want to be is God's grace. Verse 10 says, mercy will surround you. New Living Translation or NIV, some others call it unfailing love. It means enduring strength. Deuteronomy 33 says, The eternal God is thy refuge. Underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out your enemy from before you. In fact, it even says, He'll say to them, Destroy you. He'll destroy your enemy. You simply cannot conquer on your own the thing that is haunting you 
and hindering you from the joy of life. Satan is the great accuser. On the front end, Satan says things like, nobody will ever know. But on the back end of it, he says things like, everybody knows now, and he wants to stick it to you. Satan's the great accuser. And he'll take the circumstance of life and the sorrows of life, and he'll try to overwhelm you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, Satan will use it to gain an advantage in your life. There's something maybe in your life right now. Satan is using. You didn't do it. Somebody else did. It wasn't your fault. It came out of nowhere. But it stuck with you. You know what I mean? Your spirit we talked about earlier. And Satan is going to use that to try to get an advantage in your life. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah concluded, Therefore I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore 